0: I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 2. Matthew, Chapter 2. And I've entitled my discourse to you this morning, The Infant King. And that will become abundantly clear as we proceed. Let me read this fascinating text to you beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. I wish to examine this text with you this morning. Some magnificent truths emerge from this particular passage of Scripture that speak to the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, most people today would laugh if you told them that Jesus came to earth to establish a kingdom. They would laugh if you told them that he came as heir to the Davidic dynasty of the ancient nation of Israel. They would laugh if you told them that he came as king of the Jews. Likewise, they would scoff at you, as they often do at me, if you were to tell them that his humble birth and his rejection by his people, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, even the destruction of Jerusalem were all ordained by him. They would think you were utterly insane if you were to tell them that this king is going to come again, that he's going to come again to judge his people Israel and all of the wicked of the world and reconcile Israel unto himself and from them established what he promised all through scripture, a messianic kingdom here upon the earth. They would laugh if you were to tell them that those blessings of that coming day will overflow even into the Gentiles. They would scoff at you if you were to tell them that one day the same Jesus that we celebrate in a manger is going to rule over the entire world with a rod of iron ruling in righteousness from a literal throne in Jerusalem as King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet, dear friends, all through Scripture, God has said that these things are so. One example, in Micah chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, we read, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, friends, we must understand that neither the Old Testament prophets nor the Jews, not even the disciples, fully understood that their Messiah King was going to come two times. The disciples didn't understand that until later. They didn't understand that first the king would come as a sacrificial lamb to be slain To save sinners from their sins. And then there would be an undisclosed period of time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. The church age. This would be an age that was a mystery hidden from them. And then after that undisclosed period of time, he would physically return again to establish that glorious messianic kingdom upon a renovated earth freed from the effects of the curse. A time when His covenant people Israel will finally be grafted back into the root of blessing from which they have been temporarily removed. A time when indeed every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. A time when even myriads of Gentiles from every nation will be saved. Oh, child of God, please hear this. There is a glorious day awaiting. A day that God has ordained in eternity past to consummate His redemptive plan. A time when all who trust in Christ Jesus as Savior will celebrate a great triumph, even the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God has decreed in eternity past a specific day of consummation that neither man nor devil will be able to thwart. The telescoping of both of these advents of, of Christ were compressed together as if they were one in many Old Testament passages, in many Prophetic passages and even some in the New Testament. And when I say telescoping, what I'm referring to is many times the prophets would look at something and they would see, as you might see, some mountain peaks. And if you're a long distance away from mountains, you can tell that there is a mountain range and you might see several mountains and not realize that some are in front of the others. And that some mountains in the foreground may have a vast valley of miles before the next mountain that you see. But when you look at them, they look as if they are one. This is the key to understanding much of Bible prophecy. And we see this telescoping of the two advents of Christ into one. For example, in Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 9, in verse 9. First, he speaks of the first advent. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then in the very next verse, we have a description of millennial blessing. That comes with his second coming. When the prophet says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Indeed, behold, your king is coming, was what was told. The Jewish people. And now, as we celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ at this Christmas season, I wish to draw your attention to this most profound theological concept that of the kingship of Jesus Christ. That he is the one who has the royal claim to the throne of David as king of the Jews. If you examine examine the four Gospels, you will see that each of them have a different focus. If you examine Matthew, for example, you will see that he focuses primarily on Christ as the sovereign king. Mark focuses on him as a suffering servant. Luke as the son of man and John as the son of God. And unfortunately, there is much confusion when we look at this idea of the kingship of Christ, which Matthew thoroughly underscores in his gospel. Many people would hold to a very popular view that Jesus basically came to offer to Israel a purely spiritual kingdom, not a literal earthly kingdom. There are many problems with this view, not the least of which is the fact that neither the Old Testament nor the Lord Jesus ever made such a distinction between a spiritual and an earthly kingdom. In fact, if the Lord's announcement in his earthly ministry, when he said that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, if that were purely a reference to a spiritual kingdom where God will rule in a man's heart, the Jews would have laughed because they always understood that God ruled within the hearts of his people. In fact, in Psalm thirty-seven thirty-one, we read, the law of his God is in his heart. Now, while it is true that the kingdom of God includes the idea of the sphere of salvation where God does rule over hearts of believers. You must understand, dear friends, that that the kingdom of God stretches far beyond that particular concept into a future literal rule upon the earth over the nation of Israel and all of the nations of the earth. In fact, nowhere did the New Testament preachers assert that the kingdom of God had been fully and finally established. They were always looking for something more because something more was promised and something more is coming. Remember, early on, the disciples were looking for that kingdom and there's not even a hint that they ever believed it now exclusively existed in the church in some spiritual way now. You might ask, what in the world does any of this have to do with Christmas? And the answer is everything. Everything. Because we learn much about a future earthly rule of King Jesus over a resurrected nation of Israel, even when we examine the events around the nativity. And I want to share a few of them with you before we look exclusively at this passage with the Magi. May I remind you that when Gabriel announced to Mary that her son Jesus will be great, he went on to say in Luke chapter 1 that he will be called the son of the Most High and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. You see, the throne of David was clearly a reference to a literal kingdom upon the earth. The long-anticipated messianic kingdom. And you must understand that Mary, being a physical descendant of David, would have never thought that this referred to some kind of a spiritual kingdom. Nor would she or any Jew understand the angel's reference to the house of Jacob as anything other than the theocratic royalty of Israel. Not the Christian church. Another telescoping prophecy is found in Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. There we read, For a child will be born to us, a a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulder. Then he goes on to say, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The first portion of that prophecy has been fulfilled. The second has not. Clearly, again, a reference to an earthly messianic kingdom. Also in Luke 1, an angel, you will recall, announced to the aged Zacharias and his barren wife Elizabeth that... Her son will go as a forerunner before him, referring to Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He went on to say, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This, of course, was in fulfillment to Malachi's prophecy in Malachi 3.1. Once again, the language of Of royal preparation. A forerunner is going to to go ahead of the king, as was customary in those days. A king who would come and rule over the house of Jacob. And even later, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 68, when John was born, John the Baptist was born, you will recall that his father, Zacharias, described the Messiah as the Lord God of Israel, of the house of David. He went on to describe him as the one who would remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. You will remember that that was an unconditional covenant that would include not only the blessed seed of the Messiah, but also a nation, a nation of Israel that would ultimately inherit a specific geographical region upon the earth. That would be holy unto the Lord. According to Genesis 15, 18, it was from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Staying even within the realm of Christ's birth, we read more. Remember, Luke revealed to us the story of Simeon, who was righteous and devout. And the text says that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. That, dear friends, was an Old Testament messianic title. The Consolation of Israel. And after he actually saw the Christ child in the temple, the text says that he took him in his arms and he blessed God and said, Now my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And then on the heels of that, Luke tells us of Anna, that 84-year-old widow who, the text says, never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings. And there we read that when she saw the Christ child, she immediately began to give thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about it, dear friends. Jesus was born to be king of the Jews in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the nation of Israel and even its capital city of Jerusalem. And the kingdom of the Lord that the Lord announced to the nation of Israel when he came to earth was the same mediatorial kingdom of the Old Testament prophets. The same one He will establish on earth when He returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's far more than just just a spiritual kingdom. You see, the Jewish hearers knew precisely what John the Baptist was referring to when he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They understood what that was referring to. And likewise, when Jesus came in His public ministry, First thing he said was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one hearing that would have ever thought that this was referring to some kind of a spiritual kingdom. It's important to underscore that 82 times in the Gospels, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Please hear this. He called himself the Son of Man and repeatedly referred to his kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. Well, where does that term come from? Well, that's rooted in Daniel's prophecy. You will recall in Daniel 2, there was a symbol of a, of a great image used to describe a series of world empires that will ultimately be destroyed by a divine kingdom. And in the text there in Daniel 2, verse 44, we read that in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. Obviously, a reference to a literal earthly kingdom. And then in Daniel seven, these same successive empires are symbolized by four beasts. When suddenly this son of man, as Jesus so often referred to himself, is presented with his conquering and eternal kingdom. And here's what we read in the prophecy of Daniel seven, beginning in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, we see the connection between the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of the Old Testament prophecies, even in the New Testament, in the genealogical record of Matthew, for example. Matthew's genealogy is one that is paternal, tracing Jesus' roots through his earthly father, Joseph. And in Matthew's record, in Matthew one, he begins with Abraham, the father of the nation, Israel, and traces the messianic line forward all the way to Jesus. Whereas Luke's genealogical record is maternal, even as we would have a family tree from our mother's side and our father's side. So, too, we have this in the scripture. Luke's genealogical record was maternal, tracing Jesus roots through his earthly mother But unlike Matthew, Luke started at the present and worked his way back to the past. Now, what's fascinating is that neither of these genealogies were ever disputed by the Jews. And believe me, the Jews were absolutely fastidious when it came to these records. And both of these records proved that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of David. Without question, Jesus came from a line that preceded for David through Solomon. So make no mistake, Jesus came, beloved, to be King of the Jews, and his will has not been thwarted. Now we come to our passage this morning. We have this fascinating account of the Magi, which gives us more fascinating proofs that testify to his royalty. And this morning I want to look at three elements that point once again to Jesus being King of the Jews. We will see, first of all, the resplendent summons, that of the Shekinah that I will explain in a moment. Secondly, the royal reaction of Herod and the rulers of Israel. And then thirdly, the regal worship as we examine the gifts that The Magi gave that were fit for royalty. Now, let me give you the context here. It's probably six months to a year, maybe even as many as 18 months since Jesus has been born. I know many times you look at nativity scenes and we tend to develop our theology from nativity scenes. And we see the shepherds right there with the Magi. But, dear friends, that was not how it was. Now, I'm not saying you need to go get rid of your nativity scenes, but just make sure you keep it straight in your mind. This was many, many months later. Jesus was a little child, a toddler by now, no doubt. And Joseph and Mary, we read in the text, are now in a house. They probably decided to stay in this area to avoid having to give all of the explanation with a new child if they were to go back home. So in chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, in verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Here, beloved, we see the resplendent summons of the Magi which proves again the kingship of Christ, this brilliant light that draws them. Now, let me explain something to you about the Magi and the star. First of all, we read that Magi were from the east and they see this star. The term star in the original language is austere. And it can be translated a blazing forth, a brilliant light. Well, this could not have been a star like we typically see in the sky. It could not have been a star like you would typically see on many Christmas cards where you've got a star way up in the sky and three three dudes riding a camel, you know. It's not what it was. In fact, Earth's nearest star is the sun, and that's 93 million miles away. The next closest star is called Proxima Centauri, And that is 4.2 light years away. You say, how far is a light year? At least I figured you would ask that. I did. And I looked it up. And one light year is 6 trillion miles away. 6 trillion miles. Multiply that by 4.2 and there you have the closest star next to the sun. So it's impossible. It's ludicrous to think that you could follow anything like that. Moreover, this austere, this blazing forth of light in Luke's account is only visible to some, but not to all. You notice that not everybody saw it. Moreover, it appears and then it disappears, even with those who could see it. And then it finally leads them to the very house where Jesus lived. So this couldn't have been a star as we think of a star. I believe, as many do, that this star was the resplendent, blazing, radiant light of the glory of God. The Shekinah, the same light that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. The same light that even shone around the shepherds during the angelic announcement. Now, let me explain the Magi for a moment. Verse 2, call them wise men or magi. Magi is really an untranslatable word. And it's merely a name for a certain tribe of people. Magi were the priestly line from among the ancient Medes who occupied what is now Iran. They were to those people what the Levites were to the Jews. They were the priestly line. They were very skilled with astronomy the science, as well as astrology, the demonic superstition, a practice condemned by God. They were basically occultists. They were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery. Now, the word magi has been corrupted down through history, and it is now, in our language, the word magic. We get our word magician from that, and the synonym Therefore, for the word sorcerer. Now, as we read history, we can see that these magi rose to power through their cultic, through their astrological abilities, through their ability to understand stars and divination and so forth. And when you mix all of their beliefs together, you really have... The ancient foundation of what is called Zoroastrianism, which is a demonic religion that is still practiced today in India by the Parsis. Now, these men became the advisors of the royalty of the East, and thus they were called wise men. We even get our word magistrate from this particular term. In fact, as we study the Old Testament, we see that the wisdom of the Magi was called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. We read that, for example, in Esther chapter 1, as well as in Daniel 6. And one of their specialties was in dream interpretation. In fact, in Jeremiah 39 in verse 3 and 13, we read about the name of Nergal Sarezer the Rabmag, which means the chief magi in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And so these were official advisors to the kings. And you might recall that a young 15-year-old boy in the Old Testament had dealings with these magi. His name was Daniel. He was kidnapped from the royal family and all Jerusalem with him. The term troubled in the original language means to to stir up. It means to agitate. It means to throw into confusion. So now the king is extremely agitated. He's shaking. It's the idea here with fear. And like all narcissistic political leaders, Herod and the ruling elite of Israel are terribly threatened by any rival. And Herod, I'm sure, is thinking, my goodness, If this is the Messiah, I'm a dead man because he will instantly expose my wickedness and send me to the pit. Without question, Herod and all of his advisors would have been keenly aware of the history of the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord. So in Luke's statement here, um, or in Matthew's statement here in in verse 3, It had to have been just a huge understatement when it said that he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. In verse two, notice it says where um, he's saying, and when Herod, the king heard it, what what was he heard? What? Well, when when he heard that they're looking for the king of the Jews and they saw his star is blazing forth. He's troubled in all Jerusalem. Absolutely. He's troubled. He may be thinking That indeed, this is the Shekinah, the glory of the Lord, the Messiah, has come. And one thing that I find even more humorous at some level with this text is to know that historically, all of Herod's troops were out on a mission at this particular time, leaving them even more vulnerable. But still... The arrogance of men never ceases to amaze me. Wouldn't you think that Herod would have immediately fallen on his face in brokenness over his sin and cast himself on the mercy and the grace of God? But no, he does something very different. He immediately begins to scheme against God. He's going to try to kill the anointed one. An absurdity that begs language. One that can only be explained by the utter depravity of man and the judicial hardening that God imposes upon those who consistently with full knowledge deliberately reject him. And later we know that Herod becomes so enraged in verse 16, it says that he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. So he consults his co-conspirators, the chief priests and scribes. He pulls in his cabinet, you might say, These were primarily Pharisees and scholars of the law. Verse four, it says, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So obviously, Herod knew that there must be some place. I'm sure that there's a place I remember where we're told where he's supposed to be born. And it says he began to inquire. It's in the imperfect tense of the original language, which means he was constantly asking. You can just sense the nervousness here. Hey, I need to talk with you. I need to know where was the Messiah supposed to be born? These guys are saying there's a, there's a newborn Messiah, this King of the Jews. Where was he supposed to be born? This is code red. This is full alert here. Can't you just see Herod pacing back and forth? And in verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For this is what has been written by the prophet. And here he's quoting Micah 5 two. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This, beloved, is a phrase that is a direct quote from Second Samuel 5.2. You will recall when the elders of the tribes of Israel gathered together at Hebron to anoint David, king of Israel, They quoted the Lord's words to him, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. These were the very words to David when God first established the kingdom of Israel. That ancient kingdom was not a spiritual kingdom, but a physical one. Nor is the reference here to the messianic rule quoted in Matthew 2.5, a reference to some spiritual kingdom, but to a physical one. Certainly Herod and his cronies knew that. Notice what they did in verse 7. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Appeared literally means blazed forth. When, when, When did you see, it's kind of like lightning. When did you see this blazing forth? Notice what he goes on to say. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Of course, he's lying through his teeth. He wants to kill him. Verse 9, And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. Again, isn't it fascinating that God reveals His presence to whom He wills and conceals it to others? Some couldn't see it. Some could. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. My, my. Matthew makes it so clear, doesn't he? Jesus was indeed King of the Jews. The Holy Spirit inspires him to underscore this with the resplendent summons to the kingmakers to come and visit the king. And likewise, with the royal reaction of the lunatic Herod, who was so self-absorbed, think of this, he would rather kill the Messiah than bow down and worship him. Absolutely inconceivable. But we see yet a third and final proof of the kingship of Christ and the regal worship of the Magi. Certainly their attitudes and their gifts were regal, meaning they were fitting for a king. And they were offered in reverence to God. Notice in verse 11, and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Again, Jesus is no longer in a manger. He's in a house. He's probably six months, maybe even as many as 18 months old. Well, you also notice as a footnote, they did not fall down and worship Mary. They fell down and they worshiped Jesus. A fact Roman Catholics scramble to avoid. They fall on their faces and they worship Jesus. You know, as I meditated upon this, I thought, my, 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 what a far cry from the, the, the casual, kind of worldly, man-centered antics that we call worship today in so many places. Beloved, this scene literally screams of the holiness of God. It screams of the transcendence of worship as these kingmakers now pay homage to their king, the savior of their souls would not it be something someday to talk with these men and to hear the story of transforming grace in their life? There would have been nothing undignified or irreverent in their worship. And their heartfelt reverence and, and their deep humility indicates that these were probably among the first of Gentile converts to Christianity. What an amazing thought that by God's grace... These kingmakers were made to see the truth of their sin and of the Savior and who the young child really was, that he was indeed the Savior who is Christ the Lord. That this is the King of the Jews, the King of kings, the Lord of glory. You know, it was a great personal sacrifice that these men traveled many, many weeks to pay homage to the king. And they brought their very best to offer him. Notice in verse 11. They fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Treasure in Greek is thesauros. We get our word thesaurus from that. It is a term that means a storehouse or a treasury or a treasure chest. And that's what they had with them. They opened up their treasure chest a box of one's most valuable possessions. This is where they would have been kept. And the thought is, with our English thesaurus, it is a storehouse or a treasury of synonyms and antonyms. And how fitting that they came prepared to give of their greatest earthly treasures to Christ Himself. As Paul stated in Colossians 2, 3 In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The same word. In Christ, He is the storehouse of all of the wisdom and knowledge. Paul would go on to say in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, this is God's wisdom. In other words, that's what's in this treasury of Christ. A mystery, he says. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Then he goes on to say things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And which have not entered to the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them. Through the Spirit. The idea there is that the Spirit reveals it through the inspiration of the writers of the New Testament. The apostles and others. And now we have this treasure in the word of the living God. The infallible record of God's word. Oh, child of God. What an infinite storehouse of wisdom we have in Christ. And what a treasure chest of knowledge we have in the Word. Absolutely astounding. Even as God guided these kingmakers to the king of kings, I'm sure that he guided them with respect to their choice of gifts that they would give. Gifts attesting to his royalty, to his deity, and even to his death. Gold was the gift of royalty, the most precious of all metals, a symbol of nobility. Frankincense was an extremely expensive incense with a wonderful fragrance. It was a gift that declared Christ's deity. In fact, frankincense was stored in a very special chamber in the temple to be sprinkled on on various offerings, especially on the grain offerings. And it symbolized the passionate desire of the people to offer a sacrifice That was a sweet aroma that was pleasing to God. And myrrh was the most costly of all perfumes. It pointed to the sacrificial death of Christ. In fact, it was myrrh that was mixed with wine as an anesthetic and offered to Christ on the cross. It was also mixed with other spices to be used in the preparation of a body for burial as it was for the Lord in His burial. And as I think about this, beloved, I think, oh, would that we all give of our treasures to the Savior rather than giving Him our leftovers. Would that we value Him above all else. Well, I would challenge you Dear friends, to ponder these great truths during this Christmas season, to think that the king of the Jews came to establish his kingdom, and the first phase, the saving phase, is currently in process. It is going on precisely the way he ordained it to in eternity past. But please hear this, the second phase is coming just as sure as the first phase came. It is rapidly approaching. There is coming a day of reckoning. A day of judgment. Followed by a day of unimaginable glory. When the Messiah King reclaims His throne upon the earth. The question is, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you worshiping and serving the King? Are you longing for His return? Is the glorious light Of the gospel of Christ summoning you to the side of the Savior as it did those ancient kingmakers? Or are you like Herod and frankly most of the religious people of Jerusalem who would later say, we do not want this man to reign over us? Oh, dear friend, don't be a fool. One day, mark it, one day You will either stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy or guilty with great horror. You will either stand in His presence because you have trusted Christ as your Savior. You've repented of your sin and cried out to Him, asking Him to be merciful to you and saying, Lord, I want you to save me and I will be your slave. I love you more than all else. You are the Lord and the Master of my life. If that has been the cry of your heart, you have nothing to fear. But if you have said something different, you have everything to fear. I'd like to summarize these marvelous truths with a poem that I wrote as I meditated upon this text. And with this I close. What love is this that seeks to save a sinner lost in sin? What God goes forth to save a man who has no thought of Him? What mercy draws a wicked heart that hates the law of God and loves to wear the phony masks of spiritual facade? What grace would reach into the dark of Satan's kingdom night? What God would condescend to man to exchange for him his life? What love pursues rebellious foes that mock his judgment sure and spurn a Savior's plea to help and sacrifice so pure? Tis Jesus, yea, the Son of God, the Savior meek and mild, the Lord of all who left his throne and came to us a child. Tis Jesus who persisted in the quest to save our souls, the faithful shepherd of the flock ever gathering to his fold. For this our thankful hearts proclaim, the precious gospel news. As sheep once lost, we've now been found never more to lose. O faithful prophet, priest, and king, your love yet reaches still until the triumph of your grace, this earth with glory fill. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we thank you for these marvelous truths that cause us to transcend all of the garbage that we hear about Christmas in our culture. That causes us to climb to the elevated heights of gospel truth. Lord, we praise you for your saving grace. We praise You that You indeed came to establish Your kingdom. That the first phase is finished. The second phase could begin at any time. Lord, may we all be ready. May we be found watching and serving in faithfulness and in righteousness. And Lord, I plead with You for those who know nothing of the Savior whom we love, may you convict them of their rebellion, may you cause the light of truth to penetrate their hardened and darkened hearts, that they too might come and worship the King. I pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus, and for His glorious sake, Amen.